0: When you really think about the long term, businesses that don't provide a fundamental service or product or experience, if they don't meet a need in a person's life, they go out of business. And this thing called design is not, I define design really as thoughtfully improving people's lives. Yes, we have the decoratives, make stuff look good forces. But really what we're trying to do with design is understand the needs of people and ultimately businesses are trying to serve society. So those two things, that's why it's the heart and soul of business because that strategic design is uncovering the purpose of what a business is meant to do.
1: The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast and, in the process, become better designers. On the show today, I'm chatting with Dan Makoski, author of Uplifting Design and former design executive for Lloyds, Walmart, United Health Group, Google, and many others. We chat about the difference between designing interfaces and designing hardware, about how his design team has doubled conversion for walmart.com and about why he believes that you should look at your career from a perspective of two-year stretches. Dan is a great storyteller and has an uncanny ability to pull you in, and by the end of this episode, you'll definitely feel more inspired. And you'll also understand how a high-performing design executive thinks. I hope you enjoy this one. Dan, welcome to Design Meets Business. You have been in design for over 20 years, and You could argue that you're one of the people who's been around the design world since its early days, and perhaps as an extension through your father, who was also a graphic designer. You've been around the industry since its very beginning. So naturally, I'm very excited to have you on and talk to you about the evolution of the design role and what you've learned over time, and perhaps where we're going next. Tell us a little bit about your journey so listeners can get familiar with you if they don't know about you already. Thank you so much, Christian. I'm so happy to be here.
0: This conversation of the intersection of design and business is critical because I believe that this thing that we call design is the soul of business. It's the heart of what business is meant to do and can be really powerful when used in the right way. So, yeah, I'm Dan. I'm a designer and I have for the last decade or so been more in design leadership. So I've been the chief design officer at several of the world's largest companies, most recently United Health Group, which is the Fortune five. Before that, I was chief design officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, which is a FTSE 19 company out here in the UK. And before that, spent 10 years in Silicon Valley working for the likes of Google and Microsoft and Motorola and Walmart. And I guess the way to think about me is I'm the kind of designer and design leader who likes to bring design into places that don't get design, which is really hard for my mental health. (laughs) And it's really hard for acceleration and speed and impact. But when you think about a light, that light, I'm not really the kind of designer that wants to work at Apple or Airbnb or Spotify or places that have already sorted out how does this thing called design work. I wanna go to places that don't get designed because I feel like I can have a bigger impact in those environments.
1: There are a couple of threads that I'd like to pull on here. The first one you said, that you believe that design is at the heart of business. And I think, controversial or not, if you ask a lot of other people, they might think that, no, design has nothing to do with it. There are plenty of business out there surviving without design. So let's talk about this. Why do you think that design is at the heart of business?
0: Two things. First of all, I totally recognize that this thing called design has its own set of stereotypes and assumptions and images that come to mind. Like If you asked a random CEO on the street, what is design? They're probably going to say, oh, design is those creative, artistic, black turtleneck wearing people, kind of in the corner somewhere in that cool design studio, and they make stuff look awesome. That's usually what people think design is. They take the most superficial, tactical, decorative layer of design, and they think of it as art. The way that I think about design, well, let me give you two definitions. The first definition of design is the generic one. Design is simply the act of making. Any company that makes a product, a service, an experience, they are designing already. And the question isn't, are they designing? Because design is inevitable when you make. The real question is, can companies continue to afford the consequences of poor and mediocre design? Not, can they afford the cost of great design? And we've seen study after study, decade after decade, that companies that actually invest thoughtfully in this thing called design, they do better than their peers who don't from a pure business perspective. You can look at the UK design council study, the DMI study, the McKinsey study in 2018. And the second thing I'll say is, I think the purpose of business is to serve society. This is not my quote. This is from Kathleen McLaughlin. When I was working at Walmart, the fortune one, the world's biggest company, she was leading the foundation and she made this statement in one of her talks. It was so simple. And so obvious and so powerful that, sure, businesses often are very left-brained and make short-term quarterly decisions, that's for sure. But when you really think about the long-term, businesses that don't provide a fundamental service or product or experience, if they don't meet a need in a person's life, they go out of business. And this thing called design is not, I define design really as thoughtfully improving people's lives. Yes, we have the decoratives, make stuff look good forces, but really what we're trying to do with design is understand the needs of people and ultimately businesses are trying to serve society. So those two things, that's why it's the heart and soul of
1: business because the strategic design is uncovering the purpose of what a business is meant to do. And when you said earlier that companies that invest thoughtfully in design or so they cannot afford not to invest in, in design thoughtfully that word thoughtfully is that what you mean when because a lot of companies out there invest in design they have a design team they're trying to evolve they say they put design at the core of their product but is that thoughtful investing in design or is there something else you mean by that there's a lot of factors that are required to unleash the
0: power of design in a business i've been a chief design officer and a VP of design at a lot of these companies that don't really get design Many of them had the belief that, oh, if we hire a chief design officer, everything's going to be good. We're done. (laughs) And the reality is, like one of the companies I've worked for recently, I started to go deep and do an audit on let's understand the current design team, let's understand the current design practices and all of that. And being a chief design officer gave me a perspective that was really useful. And I was sitting in boardrooms, executives, committees, where I could give a human centered design perspective, which was useful. But the reality is when I looked at the hundreds of designers on the team, which looked like a big team, when you think about it, how many developers are those designers supporting as one example? It turned out there was a one to 97 ratio. One designer surveyed 97 engineers. And there were 18,000 developers writing codes that touched people's lives. That's bigger than the town I grew up in, Suffield, Connecticut. So not only do you need an executive leader bringing the conversation of design into the places where senior leaders are making decisions around strategy, prioritization, and budgets. But you also need to be thoughtful around prioritization. What are the most important design initiatives that will have the biggest impact? And then you also want to make sure that you're doing fewer things better and having incredible quality with design because those hundreds of designers, they were peanut butter spread super thin across hundreds and hundreds of projects. There was On average what six to seven projects per designer at any given time which is nuts we had burnout we had you know low quality and it's not because the designers were not good it was because the organization was maturing in how
1: it used design thoughtfully i can assume this is also something that you've seen evolve over time you started at microsoft 20 years ago design 20 years ago was seen and employed very differently than it is today and i'm wondering is the reason why a company would have 18,000 engineers and only 100 designers, is that because that, that company is not mature enough from the perspective of design yet? Or is there a, a bigger fundamental problem there? Like design is not being seen at the higher levels as important or design hasn't proven just yet what it can do in the industry. Why do you think these imbalances are happening?
0: Well, Christian, I think you identified some of the key forces. There's at least three to four major forces which come together to create, you know, what I think of as this downward spiral of devaluing design. And I remember when I was at Microsoft in my 20s, us designers would get together every you know, year uh, when Apple would do its like keynotes for various launches and things because we were really trying to foster design culture in Microsoft, which is not known as a design forward company. There were no VPs of design. Microsoft at the time, the highest level was just like a director and design was decentralized and all of that. And I remember we were just having this conversation during one of the keynote addresses where Steve Jobs comes out and uh, it was the next version of OS 10. And when they launched it, they, they put out these billboards that were poking fun at Microsoft. And one of them was like Redmond, start your photocopiers. Or they said, introducing longhorn which is microsoft's next operating system that we were just going to copy down and we were so pissed but also so delighted because here we are designers and apple steve jobs is poking fun at us and we knew the designers at apple like we went to the same design schools like we have the same raw skills and tools and training and passion so how is it that apple can do so much more with design while microsoft struggled and the real answer there in my 20s that i realized It's not how good your designers are. It's not. It's how well design is used. And so here's a couple of forces. Number one, I think there's a question of what does the C-suite look like, right? The leadership team that reports to the CEO or the composition of the board is a reflection of the personality and priorities of that company. If you go back to 1945, there was no such thing as the chief marketing officer, for example, right? The chief marketing officer came into existence after World War II, when companies started to try to differentiate manufacturing came back and all that. Now, every single company in the world has a chief marketing officer reporting into the CEO because this thing called marketing and branding and advertising and messaging is considered core, right? If you were in 1980, you would have no such thing as a chief technology officer. That didn't exist. There were heads of engineering labs and R&D places. As the rise of personal computing came... All of a sudden, oh, we really need a chief technology officer. So now every single Fortune 1000 has a CTO reporting to the CEO. Now, if you look at this thing called design, even though Steve Jobs about 20 years ago brought Johnny Ives to report to him, Apple said design is important enough, like technology, like marketing, like operations, like finance, like strategy, that it needs to be in that senior layer. And there was a bit of a renaissance. Pepsi brought in the Porcini and we had other companies starting to bring in chief design officers. And my belief is that if we think about the next decade or two, that trend actually will continue, even if we're in a bit of a slump now as our companies have a downturn. They're letting go of the most expensive senior design leaders and just saying, well, let product lead that instead. But I think ultimately that voice of A human-centered design executive is so key at that layer because if it's not there, then all that design is doing is basically responding to the plans, the guesswork, and the strategies of other leaders that come from a technology or business or strategy perspective. And that limits design, right? Design isn't helping to shape the direction of the company. It's seen as a tactical delivery mechanism, number one. Number two, if you think about how design is organized. Usually it's scattered across an organization. It's tucked relatively deep down into places of building and engineering and making, which is great. Design you know, should be making stuff. But often in those places, design is never really asked, hey, what do you think we should do? What do our customers really need? What, what should be our priorities for the next couple of quarters or next year? Design is usually brought in after business product and engineering folks have already sorted out what they want to ship. And they're like, Oh, we should probably bring a designer in. Right. And then the third force is, even when they are brought in, they're not brought in with the level of investment that's required for quality design. So imagine you're building a building and you're like, Oh, that architecture thing. We don't need that. My my Construction engineers. They're fine. We'll sort it out. Oh, wait, maybe we should bring in an architect part-time. No architecture is, fundamental to the design process for physical buildings. And that industry has you know, hundreds of years of maturity and in the world of software and, and hardware, we're still catching up. And then I think the last force I have to mention here is when you think about you know, the lack of design representation in those areas, you end up with this unspoken or, or sometimes spoken assumption that we must not be good as, at design because our designers suck. And then what ends up happening is your design team, they're burned out. They're spread across a lot of projects. They're tucked way down. There's no senior voice. Now they get blamed. And this is really a tragedy because it's like victim shaming. And whenever I've come into lead design teams, the assumption for my other peers has been, oh, Dan, you're going to have to probably fire half the team and bring in good designers. I've never found a design team that doesn't have good fundamental skills and capabilities sure there's individuals and you know that you have to help move on and that's of course the real thing that is the problem there is how the company understands values and prioritizes design and it's why i wrote my book uplifting design because uplifting design is not about getting better designers uplifting design is about having the leaders at organizations have a better understanding of this thing called design
1: We'll get to talk about the book in a second. I was listening to you and I was thinking, could the reason for this also be the fact that there are just not a lot of companies out there in a the grand scheme of things that have shown with design at the core that they can be successful? I'm thinking, for example, obviously Apple has shown that. But Apple is a bit of an outlier, also because this is not only software; it's also hardware. It's a, to a lot of people that perhaps also seems there's just a different world. But looking at purely software companies, I can I can name 10, 20 maybe that put design truly at the core. Airbnb being one of them, for example, founded by a designer, and you can actually see how successful it is. And and through the hard times of the pandemic, I was listening to a a, a podcast. Brian Chesky was talking about how hard it was. During the pandemic when Airbnb lost 80% of their revenue almost. And then through design, but not design is in just let's make it look better, but through the power of design has turned the company around, figured something completely different out. And it, it just fab it was just a fabulous story. And I'm wondering, is this also happening? Because there's just not a lot of companies out there showing or talking about how design has helped them turn turn around other than the obvious one Apple other than maybe Airbnb now I think perhaps the more companies are going to start talking about this the more executives are going to start listening I don't know this is just an assumption that I'm making I don't really have a question this is just an assumption yeah the examples are all over the place I would say those are not just outliers
0: and by the way I did watch that Brian Chesky interview as well and I was in tears listening to it just because how amazing to see a ceo the only ceo of the fortune 500 that has a design background in a moment of crisis go deep into his design intuition and training and roots to redesign the company from a design perspective and it's so interesting because he even admitted that he lacked the courage to lead the company from a design perspective because he started surrounding himself with all the mba like left brain kind of traditional ways of running a company and when, thing, when shit hit the fan, it lost 8% of their business. No, we if we're going out, I want to go out in style and I want to go out like doing what I felt was right as a designer. And he did three or four things that were completely against standard Harvard Business Review like ways of thinking. And the financial results were extraordinary, right? Airbnb from the last couple of quarters, you get more revenue per dollar invested than Apple or Google. Like extraordinary. That's not just an outlier, right? And... You see that at Apple, you see that at Airbnb. And the thing is, this has been studied. Like if you go back, what, three, four decades, the British Design Council did an initial study on the FTSE 100. And what they did is it was very simple. It, you know, there wasn't a lot of data analytics and all that at the time. And what they did is they just said of the FTSE 100, how many of them have applied for or won design awards, right? It's a, it's not the best signal. But it's interesting because if you're a company that has a design team that's mature enough to even try to get a award, or that your business will allow you to pay for that submission, it's at least you care enough about this thing called design enough to try to get it recognized. And it was interesting. What they did is they just filtered out the, I think they called it, what was it? The design value index or something. And they said, okay, well, how is that cohort of companies performed relative to their peers? And it turns out that From a financial returns perspective, just looking at stock price, that cohort outperformed their peers on a factor of two to one over the last decade or whatever they looked at. So that was interesting, right? And then DMI, the Design Management Institute, several decades later, did a similar study, but instead of looking at only design awards, they looked at six variables, including is there design leadership? Is there significant budgets prioritized towards design, et cetera? And they took a much longer time to look at these six attributes on the S&P 500, right? So more of a U.S. leaning index. Guess what they found? Two to one outperforming their peers, which is crazy. And then what happened in 2018 when I just joined Lloyd's Banking Group, came over to the UK from Silicon Valley, McKinsey launched their design value report and business value report. And that report, they looked at dozens of attributes across millions of financial bits of data to correlate companies that invest in design. What are their business returns? They created the NDI, the McKinsey Design Index. What was the end result? Two to one at least outperforming of peers of companies in value design. So look, whether you look at one attribute, whether you look at six attributes, or you look at dozens of attributes, the data is crystal clear. And sometimes it's subtle. And sometimes it's dramatic, like Apple and Airbnb. I think it's not that we lack examples, Christian. I think that it's that business leaders lack courage. <laughs> if you're the CEO or CPO or CTO of a major company, it feels risky to put more energy into this thing called design, given that people stereotype it as more art, not as actually fundamental business skill. And let me just tell you one little story. So I when I moved to the UK, I I moved to the right next to the Lloyd's Design Studio, which happened to be in the Square Mile. And there's actually... It's called the City of London. It's like OG London. There's 8,500 residents in that area, and 2,500 and of them live in the Barbican, which is this estate right in the City of London. It has its own Lord Mayor. And a- a- apparently, the king has to actually get permission from the Lord Mayor to enter the City of London. Anyway, this is really, it's interesting. It's like OG London. And the square mile is known for being the world's financial center. There's a lot of suits. It's very left-brained. There's no place that is more business-feeling culturally than the city of London. And I got this really interesting email a couple of years ago from the Lord Mayor of the city of London. He's, hey, Dan, I want to talk to you. I'm like, oh, okay, let's talk. And so we connect. And basically, he's like, hey, I've, our economists did this study where they noticed that parts of the square mile that were really flourishing were correlated with neighborhood streets and areas where there were more design and creative related businesses. It was really interesting. And then we looked at businesses in the square mile that were investing in design, that they were doing better financially. And meanwhile, my 24 year old son, who he would, we were both living in the Barbican and he was going to school doing documentary photography, his dream was to move to Shoreditch. Let me get out of this place. Let me go to the cool place where all the creative energy and design is happening. And so the Lord Mayor said, Dan, what what do you think? Like, how do we, I I want to help this city of London flourish from a business perspective. You are a design leader. You're at Lloyd's. What can we do? So basically I joined his creativity and commerce committee. And for months we thought about everything from planning rules and different kinds of incentives to get startups and creative agencies, maybe to co-locate with large businesses in their space so we could pollinate in a good way. You know, creative skills, and we wrote this report called "Fueling Creative Renewal." You can Google it, check it out. We didn't have a budget attached to this report, so great thinking, not as much execution. But my point here is, when the Lord Mayor of the City of London reaches out to the Chief Design Officer, this American Silicon Valley crazy white glasses wearing guy, he's not asking just because he wants to be cool. He's asking because he wants, from a you know, quote unquote, business perspective. He wants the city to flourish. So look, the examples are out there, Christian. I think business leaders just have to take their blinders off and they have to rethink what design means.
1: Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, one of the aspects of your work that makes you really unique in terms of the people I usually bring on the podcast is that you have exited at times the world of software into and entered the world of hardware. And the world of hardware is, I assume, a, a very different beast. And I'd like to talk about that because you've been on so many projects over time, whether that was the Surface tablet at Microsoft, the Studio Hybrid with Dell, the Moto X phone and Google Aura, sorry, Project Ara at Google. And I'm wondering, what have you learned from designing not only for software, but for hardware? And you probably learned a lot of things, but what have you learned that's perhaps from a perspective of something that's that could be actionable or something that someone, perhaps an individual contributor or someone working or considering jo- joining a hardware company might want to know.
0: Yeah, it's great. I've had such a privilege to work with pixels and with atoms and with emotions, all of it. Well, First of all, I would say that my degree actually was international relations and I wanted to go into global development and I just stumbled across this really cool thing called HTML in the 90s. I was like, I want to mess around with that and director and lingo scripting. and I ended up essentially getting into software web interaction design and then that kind of launched my design career. So I started in software, and when I went to Microsoft, I was part of the team that redesigned Hotmail, and we did all kinds of really cool things at scale, 150 million users. I just saw the the effective design in a broader sense. But then on Surface, when it was actually a table, my team led the interactions for that whole project about how do humans connect computing when you have no keyboard and no mouse. Yeah, there's objects, there's gestures, there's context, and it's 360. Right, the table is flat so if you're on one side of the table and i'm on the other side of the table and we're both touching a map how do i bring up information that is readable to me on the right side versus you and we had five infrared cameras and it was super cool and that software experience could only happen with hardware and this is also something that apple was legendary at kicking microsoft's butt in all the time was the beautiful integration of hardware and software and that those two things go together and I think it was that project where I realized it's actually not about being a cool designer in software or being a cool designer in hardware. I have so much respect for modern product designers who are doing incredible things with UI and apps and software and screens. And I have so much respect for those that studied industrial design and they can sketch really well. And they have this term called CMF, which is like color material finish. And they talk about posture and form language. It's a whole different, it's so exciting to actually be around and talk to industrial designers that are working in atoms versus pixels. But the really interesting thing for me was not really about geeking out around going deep into those areas of craft. It was the recognition design is meant to serve people and make their lives better. People aren't pixels or atoms. People are people. We're emotions and neurons and it's what we feel. And our experiences are both physical and digital and emotional and relational. So, as a designer, if you are really thinking about experience, this thing called experience design has come to mean more UI and apps and screens, but true experience design is about how do you orchestrate every touch point, whether it's atoms or pixels, in the right way. I think the other thing was that I think designers who have a particular training in one area, they naturally gravitate towards the stuff they don't know. It's like the grass is always greener. So I know a lot of industrial designers that just love to get into the world that I started in interaction design. Like, cool, oh my God, you can make change so quickly because when you do hardware, things take a long time. It's, there's a bigger consequences if you fail where you fail in software, you just change the build tomorrow and you're good, right? You mess up something on the surface table Recall and all that. So, anyway, I'll just say that the best projects I've ever worked on are neither hardware nor software. It's both. Like when we launched Hey Moto, which became Hey Google on the Moto X, it was on a hardware device, but it was actually software enabled that allowed people for the first time outside of Star Trek science fiction to talk to their phone in really natural ways. And it was that magic. Or Walmart, we did walmart.com, which is digital and software, but the highest rated NPS journeys that we created. Involve the hardware of the actual retail store where you'd be on your mobile phone to order groceries. You get a notification they're ready, drive your car to your local Walmart, and an associate would pop them in the trunk of the car. You didn't even have to take the kids out of the seat. Those kind of experiences
1: require atoms, pixels, and emotions. A lot of people recently are talking about, perhaps just more so in the realm of software, but something similar you're talking about, which is a customer would have several touch points to interact with you on. Let's say you you make an app. It's not just the app. It's, it could be customer support on top of that. It could be where do they look at the app? Do they use it on a tube with no internet? Or are they at home on their couch in a comfort Or is there a kid screaming in the background? So all of this is not only the experience of using the product, but also the context and the environment in which you're using the product. So sort of also starting to consider other important aspects of using that product. And I'm wondering on a daily basis, how do you translate emotions and all of that into a project that a designer sits on and works on this little tiny part of the software? But how does that necessarily relate to the bigger piece? And what's the role that that someone, like a high executive in design, plays in combining the two or bringing them together? Well, again, this is a bit of the stereotype
0: that design does is artifacts. They do objects. They do outputs. I think any real thoughtful designer is recognizing that, yes, there are artifacts and objects and outputs associated with the work of design. And in design, in some ways, it's even more tangible and urgent because those artifacts are so immediate and it's the things that people touch, right? But the reality is that great design isn't about polishing artifacts and objects and outputs. Great design is about facilitating extraordinary outcomes. Great design is about thinking about the lives of the people who have some experience or journey or need, who have this thing called a phone in their hand that they're touching and have this app that is it on their home screen. Is it not? It's a mobile app. What's going on who are just trying like that top rated NPS experience I talked about, but we did it at Walmart. It was a lot of busy parents who hated shopping in a physical store with young kids because it's so many tears and distractions and all of that. They just want to get food on the table and spend more family time together. So when you're designing a mobile grocery experience, you know, there's so many people, right? So many different types of personas and archetypes that do that. But when you're thinking about the needs of those people, you have to go beyond the app, go beyond the artifact, go beyond the object. And I think the most powerful force that has made design even more useful and relevant over the past couple of decades has been the introduction of social science and cognitive psychology into this thing called design research, whether that was Jane Fulton Surrey at IDEO back in the day, defining this thing called empathic design, or whether that was Dr. Liz Sanders at Fitch talking about participatory design and co-creation. The idea that you bring together the kind of people and methods where you can understand people's needs, people's lives people's hopes, dreams, fears, relationships, et cetera, and then bring those people together with the people who are really great at making things, designing things, creating things, that intersection is what's key. And if taxi cab companies before the age of ride sharing, were just thinking about their design team as a way to just make buttons sexier. You'd have a taxi app that would not have changed fundamentally the whole process of getting from point A to point B. But a taxi experience, what is it? Fundamentally, it's I want to get somewhere. How could I rethink that from a fundamental perspective? That leads to thinking like Uber and Lyft and Bolt. So I feel like the most valuable part of design is the human-centered part of it. And it's the research side of it. And there's nothing more humbling for a designer than to sit in a user research session or to go out into the field and do ethnographic research and see people struggle with what they're doing. Like when I joined Microsoft in my 20s, I remember on my onboarding, I was learning about this thing called call centers and I remember at the time they said one of the top couple of calls that came in were people calling and saying hey Microsoft where's the any key I can't find the any key and we're like why because it says in the beginning of the boot up experience press any key to continue and most people were like oh just touch any of the keys on the keyboard you want but some people were like I don't know where the any key is." and it's you might laugh and say people are so stupid but actually I would just laugh at the designers and say you're so deaf (laughs) And blind, not watching and listening to what people really need. So I think design and innovation begins with an EYE and looking, observing, seeing the experience of people's lives is where it's all at.
1: I remember a story, I think I'm quite sure I've said it on a podcast before. I was at the British Gas a few years ago and we had an in-house lab. We would bring customers in to test prototypes for future products with. And I was in the room with a participant and behind the wall, there was the, the whole entire team watching through a camera, through a screen. And there was a prototype of of something that, I don't even remember what it was, but these participants, this is something I'll never forget. She got so frustrated with not being able to figure this thing out, got fully red in the face, on the brink of crying, although this is just a testing session, right? At any point, you can say, do you know what? I actually don't get it. I don't know. But she got so frustrated. And I think not only for me, but also for the team that was in the other room and watching it really explained and highlighted the impact of our work. If we can create such emotions into someone in a testing environment where there are no high stakes, imagine what that experience or any other experience that we put out there can do to someone stressed at work, trying to book their boiler appointment or whatever it may be. There's nothing more eye-opening than watching people struggle with your products. I've been working in the regulated
0: spaces of healthcare and banking, and I've never seen more tears like you described Christian than in sitting in design research sessions in those two spaces. And when you're going through a critical life health crisis, or when you're facing all of the emotions of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety, when it comes to money, it's hard, it's tough. It's a totally different space. And those areas I think, remind teams and designers particularly because designers really are in many ways the closest to the people we serve because they create the things that people touch and have to understand in their mental models. And you feel so much more empathy in those environments because you realize how disconnected people are from money, how disconnected people are from health. These are really unsolved problems from a design perspective is how do you create a healthy relationship between people and money? Or between people and their next best self when it comes to well being, and I've only—I'm so proud of the things we've done in those two spaces, both at Lloyd's and you know, at Health Group and beyond. But I'm so excited for a generation of designers to continue what you just talked about—is to take that empathy that you feel when you see someone about to break down and say, "Well, I can make this better. I can design something better." Like they shouldn't have to think or struggle with something that is just too complicated or broken or not personalized or adaptive enough. And obviously, this is the point of AI, right? The I part of AI is intelligence. It's a human construct. How can technology respond and be more human-like? And the essence of the human experience is one of service and joy and love and friendship and caring. And so how can we use technology to help people overcome those moments where they just feel so unheard, so disconnected, so hopeless to say, you know what? Yeah, you got a big credit card bill, but we'll work on it. Here's what you do this month. I'm going to guide you, right? So I'm hopeful that design can uplift. And actually, that's where business value is. If you can really help people connect to their future financial self and become financially stable or their next physical self, those things have
1: business value in them as well. There are a couple of businesses that I've in the past have just provided such incredible experiences, whether in a tough time or perhaps just in in, in any normal time, that I'm so loyal to still to this day because they've done something for me. They're not just an entity with an office somewhere. They've done something that I felt was valuable and another company can come in and say, we can shave 20% off a bill. I don't care. I don't care. You don't exist in my world. So I think uh, when executives and and higher-ups understand just the value of providing such a great experience to someone, such a remarkable and easy to remember experience, that can also, as you said, bring business value. Then, of course, or hopefully, kind of people will change their minds a little bit. Because a question that I was going to ask is, and you alluded to it earlier. You said design, in a way, is the the function that's closest to the customer, and I don't think it's very um, controversial there. And, and I'm wondering whether, oftentimes design sits with these problems that they've seen users or customers struggle with and they bring them back to a room and they say, we need to solve this because this is a big thing. And someone from the finance department or someone from product or whatever it may be, I mean, product, I, w- I would hope they're aligned, but uh, might say, you know what, this I don't think this is a, that big of a deal. I don't—I don't, I just don't think it is. That happens all the time. Oh, of course. And my question was, what do you do when as a designer, you think down, this is the right thing to do how do you bring that to the table and storytell to convince people to put money into that or invest some time into it? A couple of things. I think I've so
0: many times in my career, I've heard senior leaders say, i got to let six people determine what decisions I make, right? If you had, let's say, a six-person usability study, which, yeah, Dick Dielsen and others would say, actually, you'd cover 80% of most of the issues in those first kind of half dozen or dozen sessions. But I think this gets to, into a question of corporate culture and... How do decisions get made? And let's be honest, most companies make decisions by its guesswork of the highest paid person, right? The CEO said this, or his leadership team said this, or the product manager said this, or the CTO wants to ship this. And if you really ask them the question, who is that for? What evidence do you have that's actually what people need? And how is fulfilling that need going to drive business results? There usually aren't very good measures to any of that. It's usually just because they're the highest paid person and they just got to be loyal. But there's at least two things you can do in those cases. Number one, there's, again, nothing more powerful than having those decision makers have a direct experience with the people who you try to serve. So United Health Group, for example, we set up a workshop that we called Compassion Buying Design. Compassion was one of the company's core values, which is great. Compassion is a beautiful core value to have, particularly in the world of healthcare, because that's so desperately needed at those moments of life when you need that help and that assistance and that support. And I think the company didn't actually understand how deep you can go with compassion until they saw how design research and design thinking and design practices give you a more active outlet to make this vague notion of compassion, really tangible, there's ways to prototype, there's ways to iterate, there's ways to all that. And so in these, we created some physical spaces and then two to three day intensive workshops where the very first thing we did is we went out to the field and we just observed. We had executives who normally wouldn't just be, would just be in a meeting and you'd give them a PowerPoint presentation. Here's what we need to do with design. No, get into the urgent care clinics, observe the stress and the challenges of both your, your doctors and nurses and clinic staff. And then also the stress of what is it like to be in that waiting room to how do you triage to like, is that digitally facilitated? And then we come back and we start to go through the design process. What insights do we have? Okay. How might we statements? So I think design is both an area of expert craft for a specialist team, but even more powerfully design is an area of unlocking the creative confidence of an entire organization. And so in those situations, you bring those executives into the field with you, they're a lot less likely to just hold on to their guesswork that they thought should happen because they it's like truth and problem solving. Like, here are the people we're trying to serve. Here's the experience. That's number one. And number two, I think you got to call out corporate culture and business culture is really insensitive and ultimately doesn't serve the business. This is maybe a whole other podcast sometime, Christian. We can get into it. But imagine a spectrum of how you as a human relate to another human, right? In the middle of the spectrum, I would say there's apathy. Apathy is defined as just not having any feeling, right, for anybody. On the really negative side, I would say there's like all kinds of crazy stuff like hatred and prejudice and bigotry. And yeah, forget about that. But like at a minimum, apathy, right? And, and what you, when you talk to someone as a designer about things you want to create and business leaders say, ah, oh, who cares? They're really showing apathy at that point, right? The other side is what I would call compassion. And getting there, you start from apathy and then you go to sympathy. If you're sick, Christian, I'll send you a sympathy card. I'm sorry, you're sick. I'm not sick, but you're sick. And I, I care about you, so I'll send you a sympathy card, right? This next step after sympathy is empathy. Oh, you're sick, Christian? I've been sick. That sucks. I'm so sorry. It, oh my God. You want to talk about it? Right. And then compassion goes, it has all those levels, but then compassion goes one step further and has it. You have an urgent desire to help someone live a better life. You're sick, Christian. I'm so sorry. But I'm making chicken soup right now and coming over. Oh, you don't eat meat? I'll make a tofu chicken soup for you. And I think if you call out the company culture and draw on company values, that we all actually do want to connect with other humans in a powerful way, whether they're customers or business partners, B2B, even B2B folks are people too. It doesn't have to be a consumer company alone. I think calling out the culture, I think, is really key. And that's hard, right? Those are That's like a fireable strategy sometimes to actually go to the powers that be and speak truth. But it's
1: what's required to change the mindset. And perhaps a bit more responsibility for the people who actually get up there We always talk about getting a seat at the table and then you get there and you don't know what to do with the seat. That's one of the things you can do with the seat. There you go. Problem solved. (laughs) We were talking a little bit before we hit record. And you even mentioned earlier Walmart and the redesign there. When I was reading about that redesign of Walmart.com, the results that it brought that redesigned we were just phenomenal. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that and see how the... De- so give a little bit of context first of what that was. And then let's talk a little bit about how design fit into that and how important design was for those results and throughout that process and for those results.
0: Yeah, the context there was... First of all, I haven't had a lot of experiences in Walmart personally growing up. I was more of a East Coast, West Coast kind of city guy that was more like an old foods target, whatever. But the reality is Walmart is... Fundamental, particularly to the American shopping experience. Walmart is the world's largest grocer, the world's largest organic grocer. They're just incredible. 93% of the US population lives within a 15 minute drive of a Walmart somewhere. And basically, I got approached by Walmart because they were really looking to up their game and design in their Silicon Valley office. So Walmart's headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. And you should go there if you haven't. It's like a cultural experience of its own. And it's awesome. It's wonderful. I love Bentonville. It's like pickup trucks, hunting dogs, and like good Americana, like just awesome, you know, small town awesomeness. And they wanted to use technology and design to change. And what did they want to change? The board of directors at Walmart at the time did what you would expect most board of directors to do. They look at the competition and they project into the future. Okay, here's, current, here's Walmart and our current growth rate. We're the Fortune 1, the world's largest company. And here's Amazon. We're a little worried about that. they just bought Whole Foods. Like, they're getting into our space. And they looked at Amazon's growth rate. And they said, what happens if we change nothing? What if Amazon keeps their growth rate? We keep our growth rate. There's this really scary line where those switched sometime in the future. I won't say exactly when. But we're actually close to it right now. And they said, if we do nothing, we're going to be unseated, undethroned. And so what did they do? They bought Jet.com for billions. They brought in the CEO of Jet.com, Mark Laurie, who is amazing retail leader, whose previous businesses were bought by Amazon. And he's just really cool billionaire. And so he became the seventh CEO of Walmart. Walmart's so big that there's a CEO for the retail stores. There's a CEO for Sam's Club. There's a CEO for International. And he was the CEO for Walmart.com. And he's got to change things up. So he brought in a new technology officer, a chief product officer, I was brought in to head up all of design. So the three of us sat down and that was the brief, change the growth rate, right? But also he as a CEO cared enough about design that he was in weekly meetings with us. And this is common with great design. You know, when Elon unveils a new Tesla product, he'll give a quick little intro and say, and let me turn over to Franz to talk more about it, who's their chief design officer? I love meeting with you on a weekly basis to get every detail. So when senior leaders care enough about this thing called design to pull it in, pull it up, or they come down into it, either their metaphor, then you can do cool things. So what did we do? In eight months, we ended up redesigning every pixel associated with Walmart.com. And our CEO was humble enough to take my advice to say, we need to have this grounded in weekly iterative design research sessions with families who rely on Walmart for their shopping. And understand what are their pain points and all that. We brought folks into our design studio. Families created collages of what does living better mean to you? Walmart's mission was save money, live better. And then on those collages, we said, what are the forces holding you back from living better? And we heard these stories of families that just were juggling so much. They barely had time for this thing called a family dinner anymore. It was just too much going on. And when I got to Walmart.com, everything was so cluttered. There was 15 carousels. Every merchandising department was on their own trying to get space on the homepage that ended up basically Walmart.com was a place where 97% of people just went to search because there wasn't a lot personalized and there wasn't a lot of point of view. There was really no design perspective on it. And so we started taking the collages of those families and these essential ideas of design and we developed a version of walmart.com the home page category pages search results all the key pages that reduced density by over 50 percent in most cases and it was we got so focused on reduction of, of density just to focus on what mattered to you we even took out the walmart wordmark on the old website it was walmart and then the spark logo we took out the walmart wordmark it was just the spark which worked well on mobile right and works you know on desktop gave you more space and I had to have like 20 meetings with executives in Bentonville to actually get that to stick. People were like, you're not proud of our logo. I was like, no, I'm so proud of Walmart that when you own a physical store, you don't put a Walmart sign on every aisle. Like, you know, you're in the store. Like when you typed in walmart.com or you open up the Walmart app and real estate is precious. And there was this one story. I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a side, but it was interesting. You know what Sam Walton wanted to call Walmart originally the name? this story and you heard this story no I have not so he, he this was his first discount store he'd already done some retailing and he's I want a discount store and the first name he turned he was talking to his store associate his store assistant Bob Bogle this is the guy real practical dude that like did all the shelving and the signage and the fixtures and just ran all the operations and uh, he's like here's what I'm thinking about I want it to be Walton Supermart discount city And Bob Bogle like turns to Sam and he's like, there's not a lot of space to put the sign. He's like, you know, I could do this whole thing for 49 bucks if you just call it Walmart. Right. And he just, he, he took this simplicity design principle and applied it. And Sam was like, okay. So they called it Walmart. That first sign, it was sans serif, Scrabble-like letters. And so we, in this redesign, commissioned a new typeface. We called it Bogle named after Bob Bogle, our first typographer. And we, we just applied that philosophy, take everything out that doesn't matter. We ended up tripling the number of personalized elements so that the stuff that was there was likely to be stuff you cared about. And our CEO, Mark Laurie was so passionate about reorder because our data science team had this predictive shopping list. Like, Christian, I know probably what's on your list because I know what you've shopped before and I know what other people like you probably have on their list if they had Tide. You probably also have fabric softener. So between easy reorder, the reduction of complexity and the increase of personal elements, we launched in eight months a new version of Walmart that ended up in most categories in cases doubling conversion and ended up when those results came out and our quarterly results. It led to the biggest stock jump that Walmart had seen you know, in a very long time. And I loved it because this was an example where the business results of finally meeting the board's request, hey, Walmart, can we grow faster or as fast as Amazon? We met that goal. The business actually grew as a result, and people were happier. And we did it at the world's largest company. Like Walmart designers feels like an oxymoron. It's like it's not a company that people know cares about design. And I'm so proud of that team. I brought in Valerie Casey to succeed me as the chief design officer when I was moving my family to London. And I still hear stories from that team about the cool work they're doing. And uh, I love that. That's my favorite project of actually of all time.
1: That's awesome. And what it brings it back to is a word that you've mentioned a few times already in this podcast. And I can, I start seeing a, a thread here, which is compassion. A lot of the results that you've had sound like happened because of compassion Starting from what do our customers really need, bringing them in, talking to them, but also from that, from understanding, from having the compassion and understanding, but also taking that message further, like you were saying, 20 meetings to be able to remove the the part of the logo, right? That that was only possible because the, the whole company and the design team and everyone working on this had compassion and understood what was truly deeply needed rather than just copied from someone else, which uh, I guess happens quite a bit today. We don't have a lot of time left, and there are quite a few things I still want to talk about, but let's talk about your book, which you've just launched recently, Uplifting Design. Who is it for? Why did you write it? Yeah, awesome. Look, I had a bit of an opportunity
0: to transition recently. I I was working in United Health Group, not only because I was interested in healthcare, but because my 19-year-old daughter was studying in the U.S., and I wanted for her last two years before she was, you know, in her first year in university and last year of high school. With Lloyd's, it was so hard for me to be able to work outside the country because of tax consequences and all that. So really, I, I got into United Health Group so I could spend more time with my daughter <laughs> as she was in her last couple of years there. And then when she decided to come to London for her second year of university, then that fifty to sixty percent travel with United Health Group didn't feel so good anymore. So anyway, I got into a place where I was like, okay, I want to start. My next phase of my career where I'm going to, after two years, United Health Group, do a little bit more advising and stay closer to London so I can be with my daughter. as She's starting yeah, her, her first year of university. During that time, I had a couple of months before I was figuring out that I wanted to be, launch this chief design advisors career. And my fiance, who's an Italian chef and one of the most encouraging, uplifting forces I've ever you know, experienced in my life, started writing her cookbook called Cooking Connections. And I was just so inspired seeing her take a break from her banking career to go into her area of passion. I said, you know, I've got some stuff to say too. So I basically took the 150 talks I've given over the last decade and started to be like, how do I put this into reading form? And I ended up very easily creating the framework. It starts with values, which is your beliefs, which you hold most dear. The second section is that vision. So, What future do you get excited about based on those values? Section three is about strategy. What is your roadmap and plan to create that future you're excited about? And then the fourth part was around tactics. What are the superpower tools in design that help you with that roadmap? And I wrote it that way because I've had to elevate design in a lot of these design unfriendly places, taking a design team that's usually immersed just in the tactics. There is no strategy. There is no articulation of a design vision. There really isn't a kind of an articulation from a design perspective of values that's explicit and almost having to flip that structure on its head. So I wanted, I knew that I wanted to write a book that would sequentially use this playbook that I'd used at Lloyd's United Health Group, Walmart. And this book is primarily for design curious CEOs who have heard about design and want to go deeper McKinsey in that 2018 study, they also hold CEOs and they pulled CEOs. Do you think design is important to your future strategically? And like 90 plus percent said, yes, design is key. And then they asked those CEOs, can you describe what design is? And 80% were like, I don't actually know. <laughs> right. I don't know what it is. I just know it's important, but I have no clue what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So this book is for those design curious CEOs and members of CEOs, leadership teams and, and it's written for a non-design audience, which is hard because I'm a designer, but I tried to speak in a language that other leaders outside of design could appreciate. The second audience are for VPs of design who have started to build credibility, but want to imagine how to create a cheap design office in their company. And so I'm actually mentoring a couple of dozen VPs for trying to get to this cheap design officer level. And it's been so great to work with them and the tools that I give the 12 chapters, there's 12 methods, 12 principles, 12 case studies. It's just a tasting menu of things that I think could bring design to the chief design officer level. And the third audience are students, the next generation of design leaders. And I've already turned the book into 12 masterclasses that I've taught at the Royal College of Art in a three day intensives. And I have all the footage and I'm now about to launch the Uplifting Design app, which will be my own set of master classes that. Um, if you don't like reading, it's a more video and interactive way of connecting it. So that's the public design. that's not what it's for.
1: That's cool. We'll put all of these or as many of these as we have access to <laughs> in the show notes so people can get access to. It sounds really cool. And uh, certainly I'll give it a read. I am a sucker for any book on designs. It's on my list. There's a good chapter on Walmart, chapter 11. There's a good cha- chapter on Project Ara,
0: which is up there. So yeah, it's a lot of good stuff.
1: Awesome. The last thing I want to touch upon is this thing you mentioned literally the moment before we hit record, which was around thinking of your career in two-year stretches. What does that mean, and why does that work for you?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. My dad, who is a designer and had his own graphic design studio, he started as a graphic designer, worked his way up, bought the firm, and he, he worked at one place pretty much his whole life. And he's got a very different mentality. He's like, no, when you work, you should stay for a long time and grow and all that. But I've never really felt that way, honestly. And uh, the moment I kind of realized I gave a name to this was when I was working at Google, Dr. Regina Dugan, who used to run DARPA, right? That's the U.S. military's advanced research project a- agency. She was brought in by Google to lead a hardware innovation group. That's where Project Ara came out of was my time with her. And when we met, there was just instant chemistry. And just I was so inspired with her vision She had a T-shirt in her office that said, do epic shit. She was just like, our time is precious. We got to do amazing things, right? And she loves my approach to design, which is based in this human-centered social sociology view. And so she said, Dan, if I asked you to join my team, would you move your desk down, get rid of all your direct reports? I was leading design research globally at the time. And just start, we don't even know what project you're working on. I thought, yeah, I'm in. She's like, well, there's one more thing. I'm going to fire you in 24 months. I was like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, well, that's how DARPA works, right? DARPA, which was created as a a response to Sputnik, because the Russians surprised the U.S. military. DARPA was created with a mission to create and prevent strategic surprise, which is actually a pretty cool mission. And as a way to enforce that mission, they would hire project leaders for a two-year term. And what that would do, those constraints would force leaders to take extraordinary risks and to use all the resources of DARPA to do really bold things in that 18 to 24 month window. And when she told me that, she said, actually, Regina, that's how my career has been. Like I was at Microsoft for eight years, but it was four projects, two years each. My belief is that really capable talents will move really. Thoughtful folks that want to grow and have impact will reflect every couple of years. Have I been able to have the impact I want? And either they're going to change roles within a company or they'll move to another company to be able to keep that actual perspective. And I remember when I was asked by the CEO of Lloyds, I was interviewing as a part of the chief design officer thing. He asked me about how we, how can we trust that you'll be here for more than two years? And I said, you can't, I might not. And that's a good thing. So anyway, it's gotten me into trouble sometimes, but it also, has kept me on my toes, and so I'm approaching fifty in a couple of months. And I've got another five things left in me, two years each. Maybe it's at one company, maybe it's my own company. But I love that approach because it helps me keep me at my best.
1: Would you say that's good advice also for non executives, so for individual contributors, people on the ground? Have you ever mentored someone or talked to someone to say, "Hey, I think it's you, sh- you should consider moving on because you're you're growing more when you just keep job." Yeah, I would. I would, just from a financial perspective, the data
0: absolutely shows that you will make more money if you move around that cadence. Companies are so poor at promoting and increasing the wages of folks that stay in one company. So just from a purely financial perspective, it's worth it. But more importantly, I think from an experiential perspective, I'm a better leader because I now understand banking a bit and I understand healthcare a bit and I understand tech a bit and I understand retail a bit right? Some people might say, I've been in retail for 20 years and I, yeah, but I don't know how valuable that perspective is necessarily. Diversity is key. Diversity of problem solving and intellectual challenges. And then I've mentored folks on my team that I've said, you need to move on. Not because I love you, not because I hate you, but because you can't do the thing that you want to do next to grow in skills here. And I've, there's been several scenarios where And it's really tough because as a senior leader, I'm meant to attract and retain the best talent. And sometimes that when you really focus on someone and their goal in life and careers, if it leads them away from your company, personally, I have to support them. And sometimes this can be tricky, but yeah, I would recommend it. But I also just in all humility recognize there are other personality types out there. There might be some some settlers that just want to build roots. They want to stay in one place. They just want to like, and that's fine too. Like we need a, we need everybody. And look what's happening with the gig economy. Look what's happening. So now at a company called Neil as a catalyst, Neol is a company where none of us actually work for the company. It's just a network of design talent, some of the best talent in the world. And we work together, not because we have to work together or people are telling us to work together because our boss says, here's the project. We work together because we want to work together. There's 1500 of us that are part of this network I think the future of work is more incredible talent coming together to have impact for the right reasons, not necessarily collecting a paycheck at the same company for a decade and like paying your dues. Right? I think that's the
1: future of work. It's interesting you said there are different personalities. I think there's a little bit of a, a difference there because the ones who want to stay in a company for a longer time, they don't need permission to do that. It's just everyone can just do it. But I think sometimes people who are more like you, and I tend to be, the reason I really want to talk about this is more on a personal level is because I tend to be just like you and looking over my well, LinkedIn tells a very similar story. And, but sometimes, at least I personally felt guilty about that because this, it feels like it's not the right thing to do and it's just, there's no one giving you permission to do it in a way. But, so I think that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. Let go of the guilt, Christian. I <laughs>
0: Let go. It's funny. Now that I've done it so regularly, I get comments from people after two years, like, what's next? Tell me. Like I stayed three years at Lloyd's Banking Group. We moved, talking about metrics, when I joined Lloyd's, we were our NPS blended scores across all of this family of financial products and services and apps or whatever. It was about 64-ish. So we moved that to mid-70s over the three years that I was there. And you know, in the world of banking is a bit slower and you have to change your speedometer and your odometer a little bit going from Silicon Valley to British banking. But it, after two years at Lloyd's, people were like, where are you going? what's next? I was like, I'm sticking around for a little bit more. And then, you know, my daughter's educational plans change. And then I like, and I would have stayed longer both at Walmart and at Lloyd's banking group, if it hadn't been for family circumstances, moving me to different countries. So look, I'm not totally attached to the two year thing, but yeah, let go of the shame, let go of the guilt, go for it. Just, you know, it's totally fine. And any employer that actually cares about you is going to recognize that you're there to do something extraordinary with them. And you might not have me for more than a couple of years, but for the time you're going to have me, it's going to be worth it. And let's do some good work together. I stayed at the house of a designer. I used to work with the Capital One and his wife, Carolina, who I met, she actually redesigned this cover. And he like posted a picture of it on his Instagram on top of a Duda Rams book. And he was like, look at these design books. I was like, oh my God, that, man, I'm not a Duda Rams, but that's super cool. Anyway, and someone commented on it, something like, Oh, Dan Mikoski, that guy that can't hold down a job. I hope he's a better author than he is a professional because like I hear he's not so good. So you get that too. And there's going to be haters and there's going to be skeptics. And there's going to be folks that feel like the two-year thing is not because you're great, but because you suck. And you just, right. you know, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You just, I'm here to uplift design. I'm here to give uplifting encouragement. And uh,
1: it's all good. Uh, then. What's one action that you think earlier in your career led to your success that, in one way or another, separated you from some of your peers? When I
0: was at Microsoft, I talked for the first time to an executive coach because I wanted to go beyond. My title at Microsoft was a product designer 20 years ago. And then I got into design manager when I was doing interaction design manager at Surface. And then I got into design director, leading a team of 30 at a studio in Beijing for Microsoft. But that was it. There were I felt like there was a glass ceiling, and when I was looking in the world of design and seeing that oh, Johnny Ives, VP and Chief Design Officer, I I was thirsty to start practicing design at the institutional level, right? Not just around a set of products. And so I was talking to an executive coach about it, and they were really, I'm sure they were super well intentioned, but they were they gave me a message just like, well, Dan, just keep your head down, pay your dues. Eventually, a couple of years, maybe something will come. And I just remember like that night, I just was so frustrated with that advice because I'm impatient, right? You can tell from the two-year thing. So what did I do? I go on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, you have your whole career experience history, but then you also have this subline that you can use. So Dan McCoskey and I had put like the UX manager, director, whatever, but it, the same exact title that I had at Microsoft. And I was like, let me change that to Dan McCoskey, design executive. And I felt thrilled and horrified. I was like, I'm not actually a design executive, but there's a voice inside of me that says, if someone asked to be a design executive, would you be a really good one? I said, hell yes. So then it wasn't a lie. It was like my best truth of my next best self. Two weeks later, I got a recruiter from Motorola, called me and said, hey, we're looking for design executives. Your name came up in a LinkedIn search. And I ended up beating out another dozen proper design executives who had that experience because I was so passionate and thirsty to lead design research in a new way. So anyway, I guess my point is, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? How do you deal with all of your feelings of vulnerability that you're not good enough, that you don't belong, that you can't do it? For me, I being the single wage earner of a family of with three kids that their ability to like eat and go to college and all that's based on my earning ability I've never had the luxury of being able to do anything but just go deep into that vulnerability and come out to the other side with imagining my next best self. So I think making that decision when I was in my early 30s, it just created the right mindset to start the first step towards a, tr- a truly an executive path. And I encourage, so I actually do my, in my m- mentorship with folks, and I help them clearly articulate their next best self and then give it tangible form on LinkedIn and their CV and the language about themselves. And I just, that, I would encourage anyone to just have a little bit of faith and confidence that your CV is not about you now, it's not about you in the past, your CV, your website, your LinkedIn, it's about you next. That's a little bit beyond what you're currently doing, but not so far beyond that it's a lie. That
1: would be my recommendation. Thank you for that. And last one is, what are we not talking about enough when it comes to design? Oh, there's so many things. First of all, I think the
0: design conversation is so, man, it's so fractured. And there are passionate folks that like are getting attached to titles of I'm a product designer and interaction design is not really a information architecture or a UX design or UI or blah blah blah. Like we get so cut up. Can you imagine folks in the chief technology office like? Engineers bickering with each other. Of you call yourself a front end developer, but I'm actually a coder. No, I'm but like data scientist. I'm a data architect. Come on, design, freaking grow up. People can take whatever title they want. If you're focusing on using creativity, intuition, and empathy to help people live better lives, you're a designer. Just unite. So that's something we have to stop talking about. Something we have to talk more about. I think are two things. One is if social. Science has been this huge accelerant to design over the past several decades to humanize this thing called design. I think over the next two to three decades, behavioral science and behavioral economics is going to further supercharge how we think about design because behavioral science and economics gets to a deeper level of these things called habits. And we understand how psychology works and we think about trigger, routine, reward loops. Because ultimately, all design is trying to change some kind of behavior. And I think we can start thinking about doing that at a deeper level, particularly in an AI-driven world, for good, and make sure that we design from an ethics perspective to use that only for good. I think the conversation is also broadening, so not just deepening into behavioral design, but broadening into what I'll call societal design. So I had a pretty substantial accessibility team, the United Health Group, that was thinking about people of all abilities and how excluded so many folks are from digital, particularly digital experiences and physical experiences with all different types of abilities. And that gets you in a conversation of neurodiversity It gets you into a conversation of all different types of people, right? What about race? What about economics? What about access, education? All of those things. This huge effect on people when it comes to healthcare or banking or any of these areas so, I think design has to go to that space because design, if it's really about helping people live better lives, if design is really about serving the needs of society, then design has to go beyond a user to think about a neighborhood, a community, this thing called society, and then the environment to think about how we design in a thoughtful way beyond just making artifacts, but
1: thinking about the human experience. Thank you. Dan, if people want to follow you, read what you're writing, buy the book, where can they go ahead and do that? Yeah, www.uplifting.design
0: or www.maco.ski. No, I'm not a ski resort, but .ski is the last few letters of my last name. So you can go to either of those places and I'm super accessible. I love connecting with folks and please reach out. The book launched two days ago so i'm really looking forward to some feedback my hope is that uplifting design it's not some rule book to follow it's just my stories and my experience and i want to hear stories coming back from people who have taken it to the next level or done new things and so i'm so excited to hear that so check out design and let me know what you think awesome then once again thank you very much for coming on the show thanks for having me christian it's been a pleasure
1: If you've listened this far, thank you. I appreciate you. And I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.